The How Was This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash movie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping this show independent and free of advertising. I would like to say thank you to Megan and Jason for their recent pledges to How Was This Movie. You're awesome. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen to us. This episode is part one of my conversation with writer-director Phil Juano. The movies that Phil has directed include Three O'Clock High, U2 Rattle and Hum, State of Grace, Final Analysis, Heaven's Prisoners, Entropy, Gridiron Gang, and Chris Tucker Live. Throughout his career, Phil has worked with a veritable who's who of Hollywood, including Sean Penn, Gary Oldman, Ed Harris, Richard Gere, Kim Basinger, Uma Thurman, Alec Baldwin, Stephen Dorff, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Phil has also directed several music videos for the band U2. Phil's latest movie is called The Veil, starring Jessica Alba and Thomas Jane. It's a supernatural thriller that I thoroughly enjoyed. In part one of our chat, we talk at length about Phil's new movie, The Veil, which will be available on Video On Demand February 2nd. When I started this podcast a little over two years ago, I could have never imagined back then that I would get a chance to meet and talk to so many interesting people involved in making movies. I need to extend a very special thank you to Jim Hemphill for helping to set up this interview. Jim, as you know, has been a guest on the show a few times. And if you haven't had a chance to check out Jim's latest movie, The Trouble with the Truth, I urge you to watch it as soon as possible. I have been a fan of Phil Joano's movies for years, so you can only imagine my delight when Jim contacted me and asked if I'd like to chat with Phil. I remember when I replied to the email, I simply put, I'm in, exclamation point. So please, enjoy this conversation with Phil Joano. Phil, welcome to How Is This Movie. I'm beyond privileged to have you on here. I, I want to just take a moment and say thank you for joining me. And let's jump right into your latest project. I've been given the opportunity to uh, see an advanced screening of The Veil, and I loved it. I'm just going to put it out there right now. I really enjoyed the movie. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the characters. But first, can you sort of bring the listeners through the genesis of The Veil? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dana. And thanks so much for having having me on. Um, and uh, yeah, so so it's it's kind of funny because I originally did a short called Dirty Laundry. Um, it's on YouTube right now that, that people can track down. And it was a Punisher fan film that I did with Thomas Jane. And, um, he, he and I had been talking about doing a bunch of movies together and they just, they, they just never happened. And finally he said, you know, I love my Punisher character. I never got to really wrap that up. Let's do something with that. So he and I got a bunch of people together for a few days and made this short, this dirty laundry short. And it got kind of passed around the business after, after it, uh, hit YouTube and, and Jason Blum and his people at Blumhouse saw it. And funnily enough, you know, it's not my other films I've ever made. It's not, it's not, it's so funny how the, this, this business, the ebb and flow of this business, but it literally ended up being the short film of all things, a 10 minute short that got me in to see Jason. And he gave me this script to the veil and said, look, you know, we're going to make this movie. Um, this was, this was, let me see. Uh, so this was in 2014. 
So um, the uh, or actually, you know what? It was in late uh, 2013. Now that I think about it, and um, anyway, so it was a couple of years ago. And he um, and he said, "Look, we're going to make this movie, and we we if you like it, let's talk about it." So anyway, that that's how it all began. And I I met with him and Ben Ben Grant, the writer. And, um, you know, for Ben of Reno 911 fame, uh, that was very funny when you think of Ben from Reno 911 to the horror genre. But uh, anyway, he wrote it and, um, and, and, you know, I, I liked it and, and that's what got the ball rolling. Okay. And this, so how did, uh, Thomas Jane come on board? You know, what we did is then uh, Ben and I worked on the script for a few months, um, that year. I guess it was, you know, God, so long ago, 2013, um, up, up through Christmas. And um, initially, what's what's kind of interesting is that this script started out a found footage movie, and the whole script was told from two points of view, one from all the 16 millimeter footage of Jim Jacobs, who's this cult leader uh, back in the 80s, and um, who presided over a huge mass suicide back in the 80s, and this 16 millimeter film uh, that explores and kind of explains what led up to the suicide. So that was one side of the movie. And then the other side of the movie was present day with uh, Jessica Alba and her film crew of kind of budding documentary filmmakers. Um, and all their story was told from the point of view of their kind of 5D documentary cameras. So you had a very, very different script than what you will see now, which is in no way, shape, or form a found footage movie. Right. <laughs> and really, although they do discover footage in the film, I we never execute it as a found footage movie. So we tell it as a straight ahead narrative, uh, cross cutting between the eighties and present day. So that required a great deal of, of development and rewriting and restructuring because the kinds of things you can do in a found footage movie, you can just have the camera turn off. And then three hours later in the story, the camera turns on and they're all going, Oh my God, can you believe that? That just happened. What are we going to do? And you're like, what, 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 what were they, what are they talking about? Because there's, you have this this kind of built-in way of turning on and off the narrative and leaving gaps in the narrative based on when the camera goes on and off, as we know, gosh, dating all the way back to Blair Witch. So um, Jason and and everyone at Blumhouse, and myself included, and Ben, at this point, um, gosh, even two years ago, felt the found footage thing had kind of run itself uh, aground and, and played itself out. So we switched it, but now that meant... The things that you could hide and the things that you could avoid and the scares that could just come out of nowhere now had to be built, now had to be structured in a way that was more kind of logical and acceptable from a narrative point of view. And I just decided, or we collectively decided to tell the story from a a cross-cutting perspective, which is pretty unusual for the genre to tell. You don't see that many, whether you want to call it a horror film, I prefer to call it kind of a a supernatural thriller because I don't think it's really a straight up yink 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 you know you know it's not a slasher movie it's not a girl running through the woods being attacked by you know the chainsaw uh masked man and it's it's really more of a kind of a cat and mouse mystery supernatural thriller mystery thriller i don't know no i'd agree with you on that one that was definitely how i took it after the first viewing yeah yeah it's it's a slow burn it's not like you know you you know they're suddenly trapped and there's someone lurking about to kill them right away it's not that kind of thing although it does have a bit of a 10 little indians vibe going on in it toward the end and i and i think that um you know so we had to really rebuild it from the ground up so that took us all the way um, for about three months through Christmas. And then once I had it where I wanted it, of course, Thomas was absolutely my first choice to play Jim. And I just 
called him up and said, you know, he knew I was working on the project. And I said, look, it's ready. You want to read it? And like two days later, he called me up and said, you know, Thomas is so funny. He said, hey, pal, I, lo- I love the script. I want to do it. Let's go do this. So off we went. Let, I mean, let's, can we talk just a little bit about his character? I mean, there's a lot of questions sure. I've got about the movie, but the the actual character it, itself, the inception, do do we know mm-hmm. where the inspirations for that character was drawn from? You know, he's, he's uh, obviously Jim Jones is yeah. where it starts. I mean, I think whenever you deal with, you know, cult leaders and suicide, I would say it's Jim Jones meets David Koresh um, meets Jim Morrison. You know, I think that <laughs> there's a little, you know, at one point in one of his speeches, he was even talking about break on through the other side. It didn't make it in, in, into the movie. But I think there's a little more rock and roll to Jim Jacobs. He's a little more hip. He's a little more cool. And he's a little bit more, um, and he's just got, he's not as a blunt instrument as those two guys were, as, as Koresh and Jones. But, but Thomas actually did a lot, a lot of research and homework into Jim Jones. And listened to all of his tapes. And, you know, there's some very, very haunting material out there that was actually recorded from that day in Guyana. Uh, you know, him giving them his final speech, so to speak. And uh, it's pretty awful. And um, and he really got into it. I mean, Thomas drilled down on this guy. He didn't just show up and play him. And in fact, um, at one point he came to me, and this is funny, it's about a week before shooting. He said, you know... I've been doing all this research and uh, I've been listening to Jim Jones and David Koresh and all these guys. I've been watching the documentaries and, and you know, I, I think that, you know, I'd like to do some work on on Jim Jacobs' dialogue. And I said, okay. And and at that point, this is how, this is what Thomas Jane, this, and this is pretty kind of amazing insight to what an actor can bring to a project. So he was originally Jim Jacobs, the character in the film, was was completely a Bible-thumping, Jesus, resurrection, we're going to heaven, you know, God, the devil kind of guy. And and Thomas was like, you know, we've seen that. We've seen that guy. We've seen him, you know, thump the Bible and, and do the whole thing in, in various films and documentaries. He said, I want, to, I want to take this guy to another plane. I said, great, go for it, you know, go for it. And I figured, you know, if there's ever a genre that you can kind of go for broken, this is it. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of if you want to, for lack of a better again, a better term, the, you know, the horror genre throughout film history. That's where you can kind of throw deep creatively. You know, it's kind of kind of no holds barred, and that's kind of the fun of working within it. And that's why I think a lot of directors, you know, from Kubrick on down, have worked in it because it's a it's Scorsese with Shutter on it. It's a fun world to play in. And anyway, so I said, go for it. And he completely rewrote every line of his dialogue. And, and I mean, it was crazy. He came up with all that, you know, the old stone gods will rise, the whole stone gods thing, the three nails and the, you know, your mortal coil. That's Thomas Jane. No kidding. No That's kidding. not me. That's not Ben. The, you know, to release the mortal coil. That's Thomas. He came up with all that. And he's quite a good writer, by the way. And um, um, and uh, uh, he's actually written a novel and a, a screenplay, both of which I've read that are fantastic. And um, and uh, so I think that uh, so he ended up elevating this guy. I mean, all the, that opening monologue you see in the film that was there. That was a scene, and it was about everlasting life. So it led to the same story conclusion because Jim Jacobs wants to give everybody everlasting life. That's his thing; is he doesn't want to kill everyone. He wants to bring everybody back like Jesus did, but in the modern world, 
with everlasting life. And of course, some other hidden powers we discover later on as well. And um, so he's the one who ended up in this opening. I mean, he takes the Bible and throws it over his shoulder and says, look, you know, I didn't get struck down by lightning. Now, did I? That's Thomas Jane. That's incredible. That, that is, his whole backstory, there's a scene in the movie where he talks to the camera for the first time um, and talks about his childhood and how his parents, he lost his parents in an unholy fire, he mentions. That's, that is Thomas Jane. You mentioned the Jim Morrison thing for a moment, because I'm going to be honest, the, the very first image of Thomas Jane, that's <laughs> exactly what I saw. I saw, yeah. oh, well, this is Jim Morrison. One of the things that, uh, you know, I've done a little research on Jim Jones and David Koresh, and one of the things that I've, I've noticed about them is that they were incredibly charismatic to, to yes. the, their followers. And I want to say that that's sort of what I got from Thomas Jane, from his Jim Jacobs character, was there was a certain level of charisma about him. I mean, don't get me wrong, he... He had a, an agenda, but I mean, he just really nailed that part. Like, I was very impressed with that. Yeah, it's my, it's, it's one of my favorite aspects of the movie too. I mean, I, and again, what I'm so proud of is Thomas. Meaning, one of the coolest things about getting to make a film on any level, I don't care if it's a ten, five minute film or an, a two-hour feature, just getting to tell stories on film is when actors get out there in front of the camera. I don't care what anyone says about what the director does or what the, the control and the vision. It's all them. It just is. And, and all you can do at that point is step back and watch. And yes, you can guide from take to take. And yes, you can shift in editing, but it doesn't really matter. The raw materials that you're going to get and even beyond raw, it's often very refined materials you're going to get. Are, are from these artists who lay it out there and take on something that in the moment can seem very strange and maybe not going to work. I mean, he was going for it. Thomas on a daily, you see the movie. When, the, when we did that scene, there's a scene I'll just say, I won't give it away, but a scene with a big hammer, shall we say. Yes. We call it the hammer scene. Yes. <laughs> he is going for it in that scene. I mean, he unleashes in a way that like, you know, it's, 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 it, you know, it was not written, you know, that he had to go that far. He went that far and I loved watching him go that far. And so I'm so, I'm so proud of him and I'm so proud that I was so, that, that of what he did, all I did was record it and maybe help a little here and there. But honestly, honest to God, it's just like, I don't know what it must be like. It just must be like coaching a great athlete, you know, at the end of the day, the game starts and you sit back and go, there they go. And it's an awe, it's awe-inspiring to watch a guy like that take a character that we've seen before. Let's face it. We've all seen, you know, the cult leader. We've all seen the religious fanatic. We've all seen the guy. But you're right. There's something sexy about him. There's something charismatic about him. There's something spooky about him. There's something dangerous about him. There's something, it's all these colors that at the end of the day, I think elevated the movie and, and, and the movie just wouldn't be the same thing without him in it. Just all there is to it. Okay. So you talked uh, about the film. <laughs> it's not like I like Thomas's performance. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely, I mean, the, the, one of the very first things I did was emailed you right back and say, listen, I love this movie. Uh, told you basically everything I just said about how charismatic yet chilling he was. Um, you mentioned sort of this film kind of has a slow burn. And that's something that I think today's audiences aren't used to. I was really liking the fact that it was, I mean, it was taking its time. It was setting up a story and I got to know each 
and every character in the film. So I have two questions for you. First off, um, had you worked with Jessica Alba before? And then second question is, can you talk a little bit about some of the supporting cast? Absolutely. So, no, I had, in fact, never met Jessica Alba before, and and she had come in and talked to uh, Jason about doing some work with Blumhouse. She had done a smaller role in uh, Joe Carnahan's um, a Stretch, uh, you know, kind of six months earlier, um, a little supporting role, and it had a good experience. And so, you know, they they approached her, and she and I met, and right away, she was excited about being a part of the project. And this was... Gosh, she even read the found footage version of the movie. She hadn't even read the rewrite. Um, so I had to go in and explain to her what, what Ben was doing in his rewrite of it. Well, she liked, she liked, as soon as I said the found footage thing, I think she was relieved <laughs> that we were going to change that. But no, I had never worked with her before. And I have to say, I had a great experience with her, Jessica. And I think it's becoming more and more apparent with her business. Um, you know, with the Honest Company, and you can see there's a great profile of her in, in Vanity Fair last month. I mean, and she's on magazine covers, gosh, every other week nowadays because she's become so successful in so many ways. But she is a very serious, very dedicated, hardworking pro who really cares. And I kind of got this impression from kind of the David Letterman or Jimmy Fallon side of things that she's just like fun and cute and charming and sweet, and, you know, kind of in an Adam Sandler movie doing, you know, like being the sweet girl. She's, she's hardcore. That girl. And I think what's fun about this movie is this movie shows that side of her a little bit more. She's a little bit tougher in the movie. She's a little bit, you know, she's standoffish to some people in the movie that try to challenge her. She tries to be the leader of this group that's kind of falling apart because once things get weird, when they go to revisit the scene of the crime up at the uh, Heaven's Vale Ranch, um, she has to try to hold it together as it falls apart around her. And I think you get to see kind of a tougher, you know, more kind of leadership role out of Jessica in this movie. And I think the other thing about Jessica, you have to, people have to realize when they watch the movie, she's the straight man. She's the straight man in the movie. Thomas is the outlandish, crazy, as we've already discussed, wild, uh, uh, you know, kind of, I don't even know how to describe him. He's not really even a preacher. He's kind of a spiritual guru, if you will, that sees the world in a very unique way. And then you've got Lily Rabe, who we can talk about, who is this incredible theater actress, um, David Rabe and Jill Clayburgh's, you know, child. Um, she's, you know, she's in Shakespeare in the Park every year. You know, she's done Shakespeare with Pacino. I mean, she's, she's an amazing actress. She, of course, plays the lone survivor, of the cult massacre or the suicide. And, um, and so she's a very strange, odd, interesting, mysterious character. So in the middle is Jessica. So in the middle of the story, you have Jessica trying to figure out what's going on and, and, and really push the narrative forward while these other two characters on either side of her are, you know, kind of pushing and pulling the more, shall we say, dramatic side. And I think that that I was really pleased with the way Jessica was able to just kind of anchor and deliver the straight side of the story, then with some surprising reveals about her past as this and some and some things she may have withheld as the story progresses. So I really enjoyed working with her, and I thought that that she did a wonderful job delivering exactly what the role needed because it didn't need another kind of flashy emotional roller coaster ride out of that character. It wouldn't have worked. She needed to be the straight man, and she understood that. And so, on the other hand, you've got Lily, who, you know, um, is and, and Lily plays Sarah, Sarah Hope, uh, a name they gave her after they she was orphaned by the the suicide. And of course, she goes through a huge journey upon returning 
to Heaven's Veil and discovering what really happened in her past and who her parents really were and what really happened that day, the day of the suicide. So a lot of, uh, she goes through kind of a wild roller coaster ride, all the while kind of fighting off some visions, shall we say, of, of the events, uh, in the past and perhaps some supernatural, uh, uh, things as well. So I thought, and Lily again, um, you know, I'll tell you a funny little aside. So, you know, Lily Rabe's dad, David Rabe, wrote State of Grace, movie I made. Yeah, back in 1989, came out in 1990. um, And uh, with Sean Penn, uh, Ed Harris, and Gary Oldman, Robin Wright. And she was, oh, I don't know, like a seven-year-old little girl running around the house when I would go over to David's and work on the script with him. And here we are, you know, uh, 25 years later, working together on a feature film, which was pretty cool. She's really becoming an, an incredible actress, you know, which is not surprising given her her family. Um, and then the other characters, you know, we had um, we have Reed Scott from, um, you know, Reed Scott uh, plays a character in the movie, and I just he's a fantastic actor. You would you would know him from Veep, and uh, he's one of the supporting cast in Veep, and he is hysterical in that show. He's an amazing actor. I cannot believe I got him in this movie because the guy should be starring in his own films. That's how good he is. And he will be soon. Shannon Woodward, who was in The Riches, which was the con artist family uh, television shows on several years ago. She played the daughter on that. She's great in it. We had a really, really terrific supporting cast across the board. I mean, uh, um, Lisa Fields, who cast the movie, she she just did a great job bringing in people who I... What I really wanted to do was hopefully, as you mentioned earlier, was a lot of times in these ensemble films. So you have these eight characters that go back to the veil and with Jessica Alba and Lily Raves. So you've got these other, and they often are pretty faceless. You know, you kind of often don't really, you're kind of like, okay, Jessica and the people she went back with, whatever. I was really, really pleased with the actors that we got because they were able to take what was on the page and hopefully give each of them kind of a distinct voice and face. I mean, you, it's hard for me to know if that worked out because I've seen it a million times, but for an outsider, hopefully they become kind of faces and personalities that you kind of become interested with uh, or interested in. And, and you, you want to follow their little journey as they, as they go along, as opposed to you go see these movies where they're all in a cabin somewhere and you know, they're all going to eventually get killed and you kind of just check out on who they really are. And, and here, you know, I, I, we tried to infuse them with each with kind of a personality and a point of view as much as we could. And, uh, I was really, really lucky to get the supporting cast that we did. So also in it, um, you know, Alexa Palladino is in it. She plays, uh, Jim Jacobs' wife. Oh, she yeah. plays Thomas' wife. She's from, you probably know her, uh, from Halt and Catch Fire. She was in last season of that. And, um, she's an amazing actress. You know, I was really excited to have her, you know, everybody, uh, there's, you know, Lenny and David and Jack DeSena. I mean, all of them provided, I really wanted to try to cast people who stood out as actors and stood out as faces and personalities and gave the movie, you know, a hook so that as you, as you watched each, cause these transformations occur, I don't want to give too much away, but a certain kind of odd and subtle transformation kind of occurs throughout the movie and and you need some actors that can pull that off and hopefully they did and hopefully they you know i think they did but but i loved this cast and we are all still really close they're totally behind the movie they've seen the movie they're all excited about it they're all it's really funny because 
although we're going VOD, the cast couldn't care less. You know, a lot of times there's kind of this, oh, too bad, we didn't make it to the finish line, or oh, it's not going in 3,000 theaters, what went wrong, Phil, or oh, so the movie is a little uh, disappointing, huh? Well, they all saw it and were like, are you kidding me? We're really excited and happy with the movie, and it's just, it's the nature of the business, we can talk more about that, but the they didn't care. They could care less where or how it's coming out. They're excited about the result. And that, it was a really, really great experience with this cast and, and how committed they were to the movie all the way through uh, a year later. And that's what's interesting is because I, I refer back to what I said earlier about there being this slow burn and, and you really do get to know the characters. So, and I'm going to keep this as spoiler free as possible. So when <laughs> things, things start to happen, maybe, you know, 50 minutes into the film when some, th- right. some things, it's, you know what it is? Yeah. 52 minutes. 52. You nailed it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> but that was just long enough to like, by that point, we knew who everybody was. Mm. We knew who their personalities were. Uh, you almost felt like you knew how some were going to react to certain situations. And there was that level of witty humor that, um, sort of some of the, some of the actors had that was just, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, I don't want to use the term slow burn because it was an enjoyable 52 minutes getting to know these characters oh. because they had a lot of really quirky dialogue back and forth. And, and I really enjoyed that. Well, thanks. You know, that was a point of controversy in the editing and finishing of the movie because these movies, generally speaking, like to get off, you know, a 10 minute setup and then a hot start. You know what I mean? You get 10, 12 minutes if you're lucky. And then it's, you know, you hit the gas and all hell breaks loose. And then, and that's generally speaking, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, and and there's more sophisticated versions than that, but in general, and I just knew that this one had to be, um, we needed to set up the narrative. We needed to set up the characters. We needed exactly what you just said. And it's kind of music to my ears, as you can imagine. I think you are the literally, uh, the second outsider of the family to see the movie. (laughs) You are literally the second person in the world who has never seen any of this movie to see it. (laughs) Um, We never even screened the movie in an audience test screening. So I've never seen it in front of the public. So, so it, it, it's just so nice that, and I, and obviously you're, you're a student of film and and an excellent viewer (laughs) for, for, for us because you're getting it. I mean, I can't believe you nailed the 50 minute thing. I really just thought, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't care about these people, if you're not engaged by these people, if you're not kind of interested in what's going to happen to them, and if you're not kind of like enjoying their repartee, who cares about the third act? The third act just becomes by rote. The third act just becomes, and here we go. This happens. And oh, look, there's a scary moment. And oh, he's gone. She's back. Who cares? Who the heck cares? And, and while I'm not sitting here, you know, saying that, you know, it's the, it's the citizen cane of character development, it at least has enough meat on the bone you know, for these people to shine in a way that hopefully you're interested to see how it plays out for them. And that was a really big goal of mine and Ben's. Um, but of course, when it comes time to screen it, everyone's like, well, Phil, you know, it's uh awfully slow there in the first hour. So is there any way we could move up? And that 52 minute mark, you can imagine how many times I was asked to get that up around 30. <laughs> and it's just not doable. It just wasn't written that way. And And yet, I believe it's one thing to watch a movie when you're it's 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 still flexible and malleable and changeable and 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 people watching it know you can do things to it. It's very different from when you, a viewer, any viewer, just sits down to watch it. 
Now, granted, in the streaming world or the VOD world, you can turn it off. I like to say, once you're in a movie theater, you very rarely walk out unless you're incredibly offended or, you know, you find out your house is on fire. You generally sit through the movie. We really did try to take the time to let these characters grow a little. I mean, the movie's only 93 minutes long. So, you know, we, we try to, you know, let, let the characters grow a little bit. And that way, down the road, hopefully, you're a little bit more engaged and a little bit more invested in what's happened to them and and what's going to happen to them and um you know uh there was there's was a lot of debate about that but in the end in the end i have to say blumhouse jason his partner cooper samuelson they supported me in delivering my cut and i will tell you that the cut you saw is my cut because there is not a thing not a shot not an edit in this movie that wasn't mine for better or for worse and that's a nice feeling you know it's a nice feeling i have no excuses to make other than, hey, listen, would I have liked a little more time and money? What director doesn't <laughs> want more time and money? But I can't say that there was any interference. And that is one of the beauties of working for Blumhouse is they do let you make your movie. They really do. At what point did you get the, the, the call or the, they let you know that this wasn't going to be theatrically released? Well, it's pretty funny. It's just a, just a couple of months ago, you know, because, see, Blumhouse makes so many movies. What, when I started out with them... Uh, they had three movies in production uh, two years ago. And when I finished, they literally had 20 movies in shooting or in post. They have this giant board, this giant board. And, and there's, tw- you can count them, 20 movies. None of them out yet. Like, you know, movies you haven't seen yet. Purge 3 and some others you would know, sequels, but then other ones you don't. And so there, I look at it a little bit like planes coming in, you know, landing at the airport. Like you're all in line you know, and, and you just, and sometimes they send you circling because this sequel will come up or that'll come up or something will test through the roof. So that gets put ahead of you or this, that, and the other. And there's all the, and you don't really know what's going on with the other movies. You know what I mean? Like you, you know, when you edit there, they have like eight editing rooms. So eight of you are editing all together. So there's eight films editing at the same time in the building, but then they overflow now. Now they're in two other buildings, you know, so you hear rumors about what's happening with films, but there's like, Three or four movies that were completed. Um, for instance, Gem and the Hologram shot at the exact same time as us. And, um, you know, we heard all about that and how that was going to get the big release and that was going to get the big push and all of that. Um, so we knew about that one. Like the sequels, you know, in advance, you know, the Insidiouses and the Sinisters and the Purges and then uh, like certain branded ones like, um, Ouija and Gem, because they're already branded, they're going to get, they automatically are going to get built in theatricals. Everybody else is up for grabs. And they tell you that going in. It's not a surprise. Like they told me, and I remember when they were like, well, you know, Phil, you have about a 50-50 chance of getting a theatrical. That's generally the odds. And I thought to myself, well, they've only got three films. I mean, you know, I got a, like, I got a two out of four. That doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> cut to, cut to two years later. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And of course that ratio has changed wildly because they've got so many more movies. And the economics are such that that when you go theatrical on a film, they have to put out, you know, 25 to 30 million in advertising. So even though the movie only costs four, my, our film only costs four, generally speaking, their movies cost around four other than the sequels. It's really, say, just round it up. If they put 25 behind it, you're suddenly a $30 million movie just to round it up. And you got to make a lot of money back to get 30 back, as we all know, with in theatrical. And um, so whereas if you go VOD, getting your money back through their worldwide output deals is kind of built in. So you have a built-in profit center, VOD, and you have a huge risk, theatrical, 
which is true of everybody out there. But with the investment so low, remember if, if a studio goes out and makes a $50 million movie or more likely a 75 or $100 million movie, VOD will never save them. <laughs> they will never get their money out of that. They will never get their money out of streaming. They'll never get their money out of DVD anymore. But if you keep the cost, what the brilliance of their business model is, if you keep the cost at four and below, you're out. You're out guaranteed. So a guaranteed, no loss, maybe even, you know, I've heard kind of even some, I've heard rumors of guaranteed profit on the four and up, you know, unless it's just ignored. But even then over time, I think it's pretty much impossible to lose. So you then get into the situation where you've really got to be a commercial movie, like a real, I call it fastball down the middle. Okay. You got to be a fastball down the middle horror. And you'll even notice at the front of our film, we're called Blumhouse Tilt. You may have noticed that. I don't think the public ever would, but we're not Blumhouse straight up. Blumhouse Tilt they, is a new label they created for when they see the movies and they decide the movie's off center. The movie's not exactly straight up horror, which we're not. Um, it's not hardcore horror. I would never present it as that. And, and, and in fact, I think it's even dangerous. You know, they, they like to promote it like the, you know, from the producers of Insidious and Sinister. I don't even think it lives in that world. This movie. They, so when it wasn't a fastball down the middle, that immediately, you know, everyone liked the movie. They were, like I said, they didn't make me change it. And the way you know they liked the movie is they'd have made me change it if they thought it was in trouble or if they thought it didn't make sense or if they thought it didn't work. But they, they were supportive of the film and Jason really liked the movie. I don't, I think they didn't think it was very commercial. That's the bottom line. I just think that they thought it was a curveball or a screwball or a little bit off center. And to spend that 30 or 25 plus the budget, it was too much of a risk. So, but they leave you in the maybe category for a long time. Now, I didn't get that speech until a few months ago. But so we were hovering in the maybe. But I won't lie to you and say, I, I've been around long enough to read the writing on the wall. You know what I mean? Like, I knew we weren't going to get 3,000 screens. Were we maybe going to get 200 screens? Were we maybe going to get four cities? Were we maybe going to get maybe? Maybe. I mean, there's a chance because they do do that sometimes. They've done that on certain movies of theirs including some of the Bumhouse Tilt movies that they've just started doing. But in the end, they determined, and they being Universal Mark, I don't know who. Universal, you don't, you never find out. It's like the Pullet Bureau. You're like, you don't, and the doors close, and then they, and the smoke comes out the stack. I mean, I've now mixed up my metaphors, but, you know, the Pullet Bureau and the, and the, 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 um, the Vatican. But, but in the end, they come out, and they give you the call, and Jason Cooper give you the call and say, look, we just can't put the money behind it in the theatrical. And, there's another thing, too. The horror world has changed wildly in the last two years. Some of it, quite frankly, due to Blumhouse releases, meaning there's so many. There's so many horror films. And it isn't that they're all Blumhouse movies. It's that everyone saw his model and tried to repeat it. Right. So you've got all these people trying to make these films at a certain cost level and cash in the exact way that Jason has and Universal has. So as you know, I'm sure, you know, as a, as a, a connoisseur of, of the film world, um, there's too many. There's too many. Didn't we see this in the 70s, in the late 70s, after yeah. Halloween came out? Uh, yep. The exact same model was, uh, was attempted. Exactly. And, and unfortunately, what happens is there's a lot of low, look, low quality output. That's yeah. just the way, there's no other way to put it. That there are just a lot of movies that don't cut it. And the audience goes, I'm tired of being burned. And I'm tired, you know, and someone's going to really have to tell me it's worth it. And I think Guillermo del Toro just suffered from that, you know, with the Crimson, uh, right? Crimson Peak, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Crimson Peak. I mean, meaning here's this great filmmaker. I didn't see the movie. I I have, by the way. It's phenomenal. 
Exactly. Was visually, uh, I was in awe watching that movie. Unbelievable. I saw, these, I saw these images from it, and I was like, holy crap, as you would think from him. And yet, it suffered at the box office. And I don't think that's his fault or his movie's fault. I think that's an oversaturation in the marketplace of a genre that people are tired of. And so, funnily enough, look, my ego would love to have a 3,000 movie release, theater release, right? But honestly... And I've had to think this through, and, and perhaps I've just convinced myself of this. <laughs> this could be a director rationalization you're about to hear, or a delusional director rationalization you're about to hear. But I'm kind of excited by not being put out in that oversaturated marketplace. And I'm kind of excited about the movie just going out there. And yes, it's going to be a slow burn on top of the slow burn I made. And I'll never really know uh, how it plays out. But for people just to discover it, and if they dig it, They'll tell someone else they dug it or they'll click on it or they'll rate it or they'll do whatever they're going to do in this world we're in now. And I feel pretty good about people stumbling onto this movie and going, hey, wait a second. That wasn't bad or this was different or Thomas Jane rocked it or I didn't expect that ending with Jessica Alba's character uh, involving a tree, which I won't give away. Right, right. I did, you know, and I and, and, and I, you know, and so I think that, you know, there's some fun things in this movie to hang your hat on as a viewer and I'm kind of happy about not having to see the opening weekend grosses, have it gross four and a half million. You know, guess what, Phil? You know, we're not going to make our money back. You came in number seven, blah, blah, blah. That's a bummer. It's just a bummer. And you're all excited about the 3,000 screens. Believe me, until those numbers come in on Friday night and they call you or email you and say, not what we had hoped. And then suddenly you go from like, we won. You know, I always think of the dirty dozen at the end with guys going, we made it. <laughs> You get shot in the head and you're dead because you you think a release is the end. But in fact, you know, ask Guillermo. I bet he's like, what the fuck, man? I made this good movie and no one gave a shit. It sucks. And so I'm kind of excited about talking to people like you, about getting it out on this level, about letting it have its homegrown existence, whatever that'll mean. And maybe, you know, nothing. But at the same time, we're now not going to have to live under the cloud of the marketing machinery that frankly, I don't even know how you fight that uphill battle now. I'm not quite sure. I mean, even the sequels, even if you look at Sinister 2, I mean, even like, again, they, they're having trouble performing, you know, and I think that, I think that the genre has gotten a real workout. I'm kind of happy to come in stealthily. One, I don't know. one of the, one of the positive things I see about a VOD release is I, I'm, I'm in my late thirties and, mm -hmm. It is hard for me, as as big of a movie fan as I am, it's hard for me to go to the theater. It is it's a, it's a daunting experience these days. I have I actually have rules about when I will go to a movie, and opening weekend is not part of that equation. So, I am a VOD junkie. I am the type of person that I and I love to explore new movies. Now, and I'm sure that the listeners of this show afterwards, and we're going to talk about when the VOD release date is for mm. for this movie, but. I see a lot of positive and everything you just told me about, you know, you know, being in 3000 theaters and everything, the stress that is like, I agree with you. I see a lot of positives on this. I, yeah, thank you. And I, I agree totally. I, I have three little children. I have a six year old, a four year old and a two year old. So getting out of this house <laughs> is insane. I mean, you know, we had to plan Star Wars out for like two weeks to, you know, to get to, to get to it. And I think that 
that you're so right. I mean, I think this industry, I mean, just as a complete kind of industry overview, is just making a huge, huge, huge mistake not to figure out a day and date pattern for most movies. I don't, you know, not Star Wars. I understand you're not going to do Star Wars day and date or Batman versus Superman or whatever. Okay, I get that. But it's such a shame that we can't get to all the releases. They put all this marketing hype behind it. All the reviews come out. Word of mouth is fluttering around. And for guys like you and me, and we are not in the minority, who find it difficult to schlep out, have some guy tapping on his cell phone next to us. Exactly. You know, it's 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 not a good experience in general. Sure, it'd be great to go, you know, a 70 millimeter roadshow sounds fantastic, but how often does that come along? And you and you don't, you know, so you you it's like literally like I reserve like I'm gonna go see the revenant in the theater because you know Chivo shot it. I, and, and, and you know it's going to look and be great. And I, do, I don't want to see that on my TV, but that's not that many movies. Yeah. And, and, um, and there's a lot of smaller movies that I believe would get, make more money, um, be more successful. In fact, probably even support their theatrical, you know, because of word of mouth from those people who don't want to go to the theater. They're not going to go anyway. They're not going to go. They should, it should be, we'd be able to see it at home. And it makes no sense to build this awareness and only have one avenue by which to experience the product. It's ridiculous. You should be able, it's like, it's like saying, well, we're going to market the heck out of this product, but we're only going to put it in this store. You're like, Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. No, that's no, you put it in as many stores as you can shelf space, right? What do they all talk about? We need shelf space, shelf space. VOD is shelf space. It's in every freaking home now. And it's on the internet. It's crazy. And I understand that theater chains have the, the lock on it. And I understand that they don't want to give it up. But these studios, you know, should get together and just say, sorry, this is the new deal for movies 150 and under, whatever their, whatever their cutoff is. Maybe. And I think the company that could do it first would be Disney because Disney has such a chokehold now on these brands that if they wanted to, they could probably put the squeeze on, especially now with this Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar kind of just slam dunk they've got. So we'll see, because you know they're the ones that are experimenting it with the most in various in various territories. But I, I I just think this is crazy. So it's a crazy crazy thing that we can't access something we want to when we want it. It's what other products like that? What other product do they withhold from you? It's interesting because. You know, we're living in such a time of change across so many uh, avenues right now. For example, I mean, I'm I'm a, a cable cord cutter from about a year ago. I ah. do ev- I do everything. You know, Hulu, Netflix. Uh, you know, I do all that stuff. Um, eventually, we're going to get into a la carte TV channels, which I'm very excited to, about. Me too. So Me too. I'm envisioning a world soon where we're going to get these big giant tentpole films, like you said, these 150 million and above pictures that will be in the theater. By the way, the theater ticket price will go up to twenty five dollars a That's ticket. Right. It'll be like going to the Broadway, sh- going to a Broadway show. That's right. Every time, make yeah. it like Broadway. Yeah, make it an experience. Yeah, 50, 20 Broadway shows in the best theaters with the best sound and Atmos and all this stuff, and then the rest is off Broadway or off off Broadway. Yeah. And ticket pricing should be tiered. What other business, by the way? Okay, this is this is the, think about this for a minute in this in, in the film business. So if you make uh, whether you build a Porsche or a, or a Volkswagen Jetta, they are priced exactly the same in the film business. A two hundred million dollar movie has the same price as a four million dollar movie. I mean, that's it. There is no other industry 
in the world that charges the same price for something that cost a hundred, uh, well, 50 times more. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I would have very gladly paid 50 bucks to see Star Wars opening weekend. That's how much I wanted to see that movie. Of course. You know, uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no, there, uh, well, think of, there's no other business. That's there's genius. No, I mean, I mean, Broadway doesn't go that way. If you see off, off Broadway, your ticket's going to be 25, 50 bucks. You see Broadway's going to be 200 bucks. Whether everything, the Super Bowl isn't priced the same thing as a preseason game, but in movies, if you go see, uh, literally, if you um, go see Star Wars, you're going to play the exact same amount to go see, um, oh, I don't, Carol. Yeah. Down the hall, Carol is going to charge you the same amount as Star Wars. That makes no sense. It just doesn't. You're, it, it, and it makes no sense for the studios. Why are they pricing stuff that, that cost them $200 million the same amount as something that cost them twenty? It's like, like, again, it's like, it's, I don't know. It's like buying a, you know, a, a, a Camry and a Mercedes cost the exact same amount of money. I never, I mean, I never thought about, I mean, you're a hundred percent correct. And I just never put that in perspective. That's amazing. But, but, but you, so you, you know, so it would make a lot more sense for them to change the price tiering. It would make a lot more sense for them to get as many releases to as many people that, you know, you think about it 10 years ago, if you wanted to distribute entertainment, there was only two ways to distribute your inter- uh, filmed entertainment. One was through movie theaters and the other was through TV. You know, immediate. You later had DVD and you later had HBO. But again, that's TV. Like you got to get on a TV and you can't distribute your own DVD back then. So you still had to be with a major studio and you either, you basically had a theatrical release or you were on a TV or a TV show. Now you can reach 3 billion people day and day via the internet. If you and I went and made a movie together, we could put it up on the internet. Now, I'm not saying a billion people are going to watch it, but the truth is it's accessible to them. You don't need to be in a theater and you don't need to be on TV. You can be right here, which by the way, can stream to your TV if you'd rather watch it that way through your computer and, and, or through Apple TV. And that's what Apple's doing is it's going to be an app for entertainment, et cetera, et cetera, which HBO already is and Showtime already is and Hulu already is and, you know, Netflix already is. So you now can can distribute essentially for free, you know, you know, for a, for a, a, a $15 GoDaddy account, you can distribute to the world, your filmed entertainment for essentially free. That changes everything. It just does. But of course, you know, the, the theater owners and the studios are a monopoly. It's just the way it is. They're a monopoly. And, and who's kidding who? They, they are. And, and so they're going to keep a lock on this until somebody realizes or, or someone from the outside and it could very well end up being um somebody again from outside there you know the googles of the world you know who will just say we've got enough money to do this we're not in the system we're going to do it our own way i mean amazon's trying to do it aren't they and, and netflix is trying to do it they, they and they not only trying they're doing it but um you know beast of no nation is, is a great example you know they just they took this great director and said we'll make a movie with you boom but anyway i am excited while, you know, a little early in, in the curve of what we're talking about, I'm excited that The Veil is going to have a chance to reach the market, you know, without much fanfare, I know. But over time, I myself find myself clicking through Netflix or clicking through iTunes or clicking through, you know, clicking through VOD. And you go, huh, what is that? And you'll get to take a look at the trailer in a little bit. And maybe that'll hook people and maybe conversations like this or maybe word of mouth. But I'm, I'm really comfortable with this movie finding its audience 
rather than it being, I'll give you a good example. For, so for instance, Universal did this poster. It's not really a poster. They, call, they don't even call it a poster in VOD. They call it the thumbnail. <laughs> because it's never going to be a poster. It's never going to be in a movie theater. So it's a little teeny thumbnail. And it looks, it is straight up like a horror poster. You know, Jessica looking scared, Thomas looking spooky. And I won't say that it misrepresents the movie, but frankly, it, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not the mood and tone of the movie because they just want to grab, I get it. They want to grab the horror crowd when it gets on the shelf, when it gets on the thing. And, and again, that made me, when I saw how even though the movie isn't that, Again, I felt relieved that it wasn't going to be jammed at an audience that way. I mean, the thumbnail's a thumbnail, whatever. You know what I mean? It is what it is. I, I, I had no say over it, so you just have to let it go. Um, and I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, it's the, the movie's the movie. Who really cares about the silly thing in the end? Um, we get too crazy about that silly stuff. But again, it kind of gave me a sense of relief that had we gone out in 3,000 theaters, that's the way it would have gone out, right? They would have shoved it out as a horror film. It isn't. And you know what's interesting you say about that? And this is, I just, it just occurred to me. I probably wouldn't have seen the movie in the <laughs> theater because it probably the way it would have been marketed. I, I mean, I've seen several oh. of the Bloomhouse films, you know, but never in a theater. I think I saw The Purge in the theater and that's, that's it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you, and you got a really, and, and the reason for The Purge to see in the theater was it was a unique concept. Yeah. So you kind of went, well, that's crazy. You can murder, you can murder anyone you want on one day of the year. Well, that's kind of off, right? I and mean, that was outside their comfort zone. And therefore it was a success. When do we expect the VOD release for this, for the veil? The VOD is going to be coming out February 2nd of this year. Okay. So Tuesday, February 2nd. And, uh, here in Los Angeles, we're actually the American Cinematheque is going to be showing it at the Egyptian theater, um, on Monday night. Uh, the first at 7.30. So we're going to actually get uh, a big screen, um, you know, premiere, if you will, um, just uh, through the goodness uh, of their hearts over there. And which is kind of cool because we finished the film theatrically, which is, again, really nice. Like Blumhouse, even though we know it's VOD, they completely let me finish it theatrically. And in fact, the guy who did the color correction on it, uh, Stefan Sonnenfeld, it was pretty funny. Um, we color corrected this movie in the same theater that Star Wars did. And we were in in the mornings until 1 o'clock. And my little $4 million movie, me and my DP would walk out and in would march J.J. Abrams and his entire crew to finish their little indie film, Star Wars. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Um, but I've worked with Stefan on all my movies for about 20 years. So he, of course, gave us a, he gave us a steep discount versus the Star Wars, uh, uh version. But, uh, yeah, it really, um, so I'm really pleased with the way it looks. On the big screen. And it, then, of course, we, we translate that to DVD. Sure, sure. No, it looks gorgeous. I mean, it was a beautiful movie. And that was one of the things that struck me right away, is just how, how incredible the movie looked. Oh, thank you. Um, where was the filming location at? The, the location, uh, the movie was filmed um, and here in Los Angeles. And that's another kind of interesting thing about Blumhouse movies, is that you get to do them, as they say, in town, which is a big deal to everybody. They don't ship you to Louisiana. They don't ship you, you know, to, to New Mexico. So it was shot here, um, in, in, on the Chumash, uh, Indian reservation, um, which is out in Thousand Oaks. And there's this beautiful, um, God, you know, uh, gosh, probably like, I don't know how many acres, but hundreds and hundreds of acres of land that's been protected, um, for the, uh, for the Chumash. And they allowed us to come out and we built, uh, our farmhouse and we built our outdoor church and, and because on Blumhouse movies, the key is, and you'll always notice this in their template, is that you find one location and you pretty much stay there. 
So for instance, in the sinisters, you're in the house, in the purge, you're in the house. In Insidious, you're in the house. You know, you kind of usually are in a house, like you don't jump around to a lot of locations. So the movie was shot, it was a 25 day shoot. And um, we were there uh, for 24 out of 25 days. We just shot one day in the uh, house with Lily Rabe that opens the movie. And other than that, we were out at the Chumash Reservation. So all those sets were built in the actual reservation compound. So even this, uh, what we call the old house, where they, they discover this old, hidden, creepy house um, of Jim Jacobs. And when they go in there, that was actually a set built in the forest, the interior. It wasn't, you know, normally you do that on a soundstage because you don't want the rain and, oh, we had critters living in there and we had, you know, rain was coming through the roof and because we, but we built an exterior set and just prayed that it would hold up and, and luckily it did. So yeah, um, it's pretty unusual too. We were one of the first, if not the first uh, Blumhouse movie to even build sets because usually you use practical, you just don't have the money. But I, um, <clears throat> called in a lot, a lot of favors on this movie and um a lot of people were really supportive of helping us get it done for the for the price that's incredible uh, okay yeah. so i mean i'm i'm like i said um i've seen the movie twice now because it's wow. it, it really it, it begs a second viewing i i think especially once you know the story and once mm-hmm. you sort of know the ending uh it's it's kind of interesting i always like to kind of go back and and look at the whole thing and understand it, everything makes a little more sense for me when I watch it the second time because I understand everything that's going to happen. Sure. It's interesting you say that because there's definitely aspects of it. And I don't, I didn't, it's hard to know like how far you can go with this, but there's aspects of it where you're like, are they going to get like, without giving away, there's shifts and changes that occur that are purposely confusing. They're purposely like, wait a second. For instance, I can say this. Didn't that guy just die? Exactly. That, and exactly, yeah. now that guy's not dead. And that's going to be confusing. And But then more happens. And then more happens. And it, hopefully at some point, and I know the point is supposed to be rock solid clear, but at some point in, in as the story progresses, particularly into the third act, you're supposed to go, okay, got it. But it's not immediately clear. So you do have to go with it and hopefully in the end it's clear. Well, I can say this, um, even the first, the first viewing of it, the, and again, we're not going to spoil anything. I'm not going to mention any characters, but when sure, the sure idea, not. the idea comes up that maybe somebody didn't actually die. Right. Uh, I was kind of like, well, this is a turn. This is a turn I want to see the outcome for. I want to understand exactly what is happening here. So, uh, it, but again, it was very interesting to watch it the second time because now I'm trying to look at them, look at the, the person or persons. And see what kind of personality change I can see just in their face. Right. And just, just, just little subtle things like that. And, or glasses or yeah. their hair yeah. or, yeah, we did little shifts in people as they, shall we say, transform and, and even in the tone of their voice. And again, these actors really got into it. What was really cool is, let's face it, a lot of times in this genre, you see a lot of slumming. You just do. You know, you see actors kind of show up, do it, bail out, move on. They did their thing. If it works, it works. It doesn't, it doesn't. It's a genre piece. Let's just, you know, check the box. You know, got my face up there. That was not the case here. These guys, all of them. And again, there was a, I thought Ben did a great job. There was enough meat on the bone for them to dig in on. And then they had a lot of fun even with the genre moments, you know, like the scares. Um, It was really cool. It was really cool. I mean, I had a really, really high-end, high-caliber actor to work with. Now I'm going to try to pose this question as 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 delicately as I can because I don't want to infer anything, 
But what, if any possibility of a sequel, would there be? And what would it take for that to happen? Because I don't want to spoil anything. No. Well, so when we... um, (laughs) The whole time I was making the movie, because the ending does leave some questions open. Correct. And, And there's, without a doubt, the possibility for this story to continue and to expand, actually, to grow into a larger story. Um, you know, kind of, kind of in the way they, they tried to do with the omen, but kind of got a little off the rails, you know, um, but, but, you know, with, with Damien moving on. And I think that, that in this case, um, you know, this movie would have to take on such a cult following and it would have to reach the ears of Universal and Blum House to a decibel level that would be pretty excruciating for them to go, wait a second, there's another chapter here. For me as a storyteller, I think there's an awesome chapter that follows this up. And, and you know, let's just call it, you know, they come down off the mountain and all hell breaks loose. You know, you know, veil, you know, veil the apocalypse, you know. Um, in fact, it's funny. I even had an ending credit sequence idea that as the credits rolled, you would see images, news images, all... Um, Altered news images of very apocalyptic events. See, that's, and um, that's the story I'm thinking right there. Like, yes, that's it. And shall we say Jim might be involved in some of that imagery? And I was going to composite him in and do this whole crazy where the audience was like, what? What happened next? What did he do? What did he do? But the, the right to get even your most basic stock footage that can run for a few minutes was over our heads financially. So ultimately I couldn't execute it, but I, I, um, I, I played around with it and it was fun, but it, but at the end of the day, it was, it was just not in the financial end of the game. But yes, there is without a doubt a pretty cool, interesting version of this movie down the road. And, and, you know, all I can say is you never know, you never know. Weirder things have happened, right? Yeah. I mean, I've seen movies, there's, there's bizarre, all the time I'll click on Netflix, I'll go, they made a sequel to that? And they made a sequel to that? And they made four of them? Like, you never, ever know, you know, but as of now, there's, you know, the movie's got to trickle out there and, and let's see if it gets, gets any traction. But, um, there is, it is meant to give you a sense quite purposely, the final sequence, shall we say, the final shot of the movie, because it's one continuous shot, is, is meant to say to you, more to come. And that's going to wrap up part one of our conversation. In part two, Phil and I discuss everything from getting into film school, his first time meeting Steven Spielberg, his first movie, Three O'Clock High, and traveling the world with you two. You know, one of my all-time favorite movies is Phil's film, Entropy. It's a movie that I've loved since first seeing it back in 2000. I got a chance to talk to Phil about it. Imagine if you got a chance to discuss one of your favorite films with the person who made it. I'll see you in part two. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.